0: Hello, I'm Tom Harper.
1: And I'm Diana Thomas.
0: Welcome to That Wilbur Smith Show,
1: a podcast about the historical, geographical, natural, and human background to the world of Wilbur Smith.
0: They turned north from Pietermaritzburg and climbed steadily up across bleak grassland towards the mountains. On the third day, they saw the Drakensberg, jagged and black as the teeth of an ancient shark along the skyline. The pass ran like a twisted gut through the Drakensberg. The mountains stood up sheer and black on each side of them, so they rode in shadow and saw the sun only for a few hours in the middle of the day.
1: Then the mountains dropped away, and they were out into the open. Today, we're going to continue our exploration of Wilbur Smith's first book, When the Lion Feeds. At the end of the last episode, we left our hero, Sean Courtney, heading north with his friend, Mbajani, on a new adventure, having given his half of the family ranch to his brother, Garrick. In the next part of the story, Sean is going to make a lot of money. But
0: how? Well, uh, interesting, you should ask. So um, the books divided into various sections. The, um, the first one, um, Part one is um, Natal, so that's his, his boyhood. Uh, and then part two is uh, Witwatersrand. And uh, again, the, this is very economical storytelling. My copy, page 179, Sean sets out. Um, they turn north from Pietermaritzburg. And by, so that's page 179. And by page 183, uh, he has, he's in a bar. And a man is showing him a piece of rock, which he says uh, comes from the Witwatersrand over the the mountains, uh, and maybe it contains gold. So no no time is lost uh, in the storytelling. But before he sees the gold, he meets this other, probably um, the most significant character in the book, in my view, um, after Sean, who goes by the wonderful name of Dufford Charliewood, known as Duff.
1: That's a kind of Dickensian name, isn't it, Dufford Charliewood?
0: Yes. Uh, and in fact, there is a scene very late in the book, actually, where Sean reads him Dickens. Uh, so, so again, I wonder if, if that was in Wilbur's mind too. And again, this sort of none more Wilbur introduction. I mean, we know we've talked about this um, other times, uh, that how you meet a character, how you introduce a character as an author um, is, is one of the most important things uh, in your arsenal as a writer to kind of set up that character. Of course, Sean and Duff meet in a barroom brawl, um, and Sean's gone in in a foul mood. A man actually offers to buy him a drink while he's drunk and is is um, in a sulk. Uh, the, the, the guys are drunk, uh, and so Sean starts uh, a fight. Um, and six of, of the regulars in this bar turn on him. Um, and and this is, I think, this is the moment where I thought Wilbur just doesn't think like I think. And I need to really, um, if I'm going to be working on these books with him, I really need to up my game, my imaginative game. Because I tell you, if I'm in a bar in the middle of nowhere, somewhere in Natal, and six burly coal mining types start facing off with me, I absolutely am going to run like hell to get out of there. Whereas Sean thinks, great. and, And there's this great line, uh, as, as, when when they start the fight, uh, gone too was his mood. Was his mood of depression, and in its place was a sense of relief. This was what he needed. It's like this. The idea that this fight's going to be cathartic for him, and he's you know he's, he's a bit depressed.
1: He definitely thinks like that, and and I think there are guys who do. It's like it's like it's like for example something ridiculous thing, but um, rugby players yeah. being kind of really cross when the game is made safer. Yes. Yeah. What they want to do. Is hit one another. That's that's the pleasure yeah. of the game is that for, for 80 minutes you can just go out there and bash mm-hmm. people yeah. and be bashed. I mean the bashing is sort of the point of it. Yeah. And
0: again, I think um because people who write books and people who read books are generally sort of more sensitive, imaginative sort of people. Um I think it's often harder to identify with that kind of attitude. So again, the fact that Wilbur gets that in there and again, doesn't shy away from it. There's no apology that Sean is a man who likes to use his fists and and finds the sort of cleansing violence. It's just how he is. And again, I think that's part of this very stark, um, sometimes brutal portrayal of Sean as a character.
1: He's also, you know, he's among a bunch of kind of roughneck gold prospectors. Who are who are you know this is not a place for sensitive flowers I think I don't think you or I would necessarily have been dashing off to, <laughs> to, <laughs> to the, to the what has written us around ourselves yeah no so so yeah you're right and then and then then his fun is to some extent diminished because somebody offers to help him out enter yes
0: enter Duff Charliewood, yeah
1: who's this he's a kind of languid upper class second third or fourth son of a rather horrible British aristocrat who's basically being kicked out of the family, home, gone off to Canada, I think, to find his fortune. That's right. Left Canada. And he's this sort of, well, he is this sort of a Bertie Worcester character. And so he talks in this very kind of, oh, I say, oh boy, dear chap, you know, kind of very <laughs> posh English way. And, and and I think it's quite a nice foil for, for Sean, who's much more the rough colonial. Um, and together, and it turns out that, that Dufford's Charliewood knows a bit about rock and understands that the bit, lump that that Sean has been given actually contains gold yeah and
0: it's interesting um Duff uh, as a foil to Sean because absolutely whereas i think in the first part Gary is 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 the foil uh, in this part Duff is absolutely the foil and you um mm-hmm. There, there are similarities in their stories. So both um, have kind of run away from home to seek their fortunes because because of kind of issues with their families. Um, in fact, Duff again had a had a brother who um, who basically wouldn't share the inheritance and was jilted in love. Um, so kind of uh, it's different to Sean, but there's kind of echoes of what's happened to him. So, but but. And it's interesting again the the way that Wilbur writes this is even the way they fight um, is tells you about their character. So Duff takes out his cane and like with two quick taps of his lead weighted cane takes out his two um, guys in the barber all and Sean (laughs) then just opens his arms wide uh, like in a sort of bear hug and charges into all four of the remaining guys and knocks them all down and just jumps on them.
1: He works out before he charges the kind of distance they are between you and and realizes they're far enough to get them all. I must say the, the kind of the four in one rugby tackle since we came back to that, but it sort of yeah, is Yeah,
0: it is exactly that. yeah.
1: Speaking of someone who's written a fair amount of fight scenes, I thought that was that was one point at which I thought, mm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure I get all four. <laughs> Think of the strength you have to have of the, the furthest reaches of your arms and hands to grasp four sets of meaty thighs and bring them all at once to the ground. Nevertheless he is a hero and heroes can do yes, things. Like and
0: them. he is a Courtney and Courtney's can definitely do things that lesser mortals can't.
1: And as a writer, I mean, and here's an interesting thing. I mean, writers very often create characters who are precisely what they aren't themselves. If you see what I mean, and, and fulfill some part of your character that you've not been able to fulfill. Yeah. And I don't think Wilbur himself, Actually, was a punchy, fighty, brawly person. I mean, I think he has run-ins with, run-ins with his father, and we'll come to all those later. But, but I, but I, I don't think he was a brawler. In fact, I'm pretty sure he wasn't. So, you know, it's fun to write that. It's fun to do those things which can't be done. <laughs> well,
0: it's like it's like Lee Child says: you always write your protagonist two inches taller than you are yourself. Which, actually, given how tall
1: Lee um, is, um, he, that's yeah, well, yeah,
0: talking. exactly. Yeah, well, this, is, this is this is why uh, Re- Reacher is quite quite as big as he is. <laughs>
1: Anyway, they go off. Duff and and Sean yeah. go off, and they they pool their resources to buy a set of plots. Um, which and um, uh, and there's a sort of they the reason they do this is because they they get both figuratively and literally, in Duff's case, into bed <laughs> with this rather wonderful character Candy, yeah. who's the kind of proprietress of the saloon, as it were. Kind of like a yeah. comparison of Western.
0: Yeah, she, she really isn't She's like the saloon owner. <laughs>
1: and she she happens to have a series of she's she's got some stakes and and they persuade her basically to give them an option on the stakes in exchange for a much higher price if they strike gold. And she's she's the kind of beautiful bar lady with a heart of gold yeah and she becomes their pal i mean that's she becomes and it will become or doesn't become well she becomes Duff's lover, and we'll come up what happens to that but i mean but she she's an interesting character because she's written very much as a chum, if you know what i mean she's 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 obviously very sexy, but she's not particularly sexualized in the book he doesn't she's very much their collaborator and their their kind of confidant and their partner wouldn't you say
0: yes i think that's right and again a kind of um i think shows the, the the breadth of wilbur's writing the way that as as you said female characters often in across all um fiction often fall into kind of stereotypes and actually uh she she's she's not quite that uh she um she's not being seen with as much of the male gaze and she has uh, quite a, you
1: know she has yeah. an interesting and complex emotional relationship with the two guys. It's kind of a bit Julie Jim, if you know what i mean <laughs> yes <laughs> yes um, on bicycles. um but anyway, it turns out that the the, the claims she has are indeed literally a gold mine yes and and um after various to toings and froings and, you know, naturally almost going bust before they really strike the, the big gold rush. They end up making a huge fortune, um, as one understands it, and becoming and and it's interesting and, and Sean is clearly physically and morally corrupted by the money he makes. Which is quite an interesting thing. It it doesn't it doesn't do him any good.
2: Yeah.
0: And I think this is um really the heart of the book, this bit, from when they strike gold um, through when Sean finally leaves uh, Johannesburg. Um, and it's... as any Roald Dahl has this great quote that, you know, what children want in books is money and chocolate. No, so what, what children like is money and chocolate. Um, and I think we don't really change as grown-ups either. Uh, and I think there's something just the sort of wish fulfillment wonderful about reading about them amassing this fortune and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger um and i've i've written novels featuring kind of extremely wealthy characters and again i sort of suffer from a paucity of imagination as to like what would it be to be fantastically rich and i sort of struggle to um lift my mind to how you would spend that much money but wilbur has no problem with that you know, first of all, they're investing in the machinery. That's fine. Uh, then they uh, build this. Um, they build. They, they build a brothel and a stock exchange, um, and uh, which are the, the two things that Johannesburg needs. Yes, they
1: do. Um, and, they, and they call. They call their mine the Candy Deep, which is. Candy Deep sounds like a porn star.
0: Um, candy named after the, 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 the lady who owned the, the claim and, and Deep because they're digging deep. But yes, you're right. It put together, it does, it, there's something just slightly obscene about it, isn't there?
1: But, but the thing about it is, is that this is the point at which Sean is dressing up Mbajane in, in rather offensive costumes. And, and it's clear that, that, as I say, he's, he, he's becoming soft. Physically and mentally soft, they're becoming very self-indulgent. The money is very much a poisoned chalice. It's not. This is not a book in which, as it were, um, um, Jack um, plants his beanstalk and goes up and gets all the giant's gold, and that's great. No, he's he's corrupted by it, and and then he loses it all. And now this is another point because the what essentially happens is that there's a man called Hradsky who has accumulated great wealth and Duff and Sean go into business with him. And then Max, who is Hradsky's kind of right-hand man. And we're not, there's a certain sense that they may be gay lovers because Max is written very, very it's very feet. He's the, he's the pretty young thing. And, and Max comes to, to Sean and Duff with this scheme, because he says he's sick of Hradsky, he can't bear it, he's always having to kind of, you know, be his yes man. He he, he they have it's kind of long story short, they're gonna trick Hradsky, they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna buy his shares short and sell them long. And Hrad, and it turns out that basically Max has been duping them, the whole thing is a trap set by Hradsky, the trap is sprung, and they're left with nothing because he turns The trick onto them, and basically, instead of them taking all his shares, he takes all their shares. He does, as it turns out, do Sean a kind of favor because then Sean is once again forced to go out into the wild, and Duff goes with him, and they become elephant hunters. Off they go, and um, and they take with them Imbajani, and and Imbajani has brought a number of other Zulus to work with them on the mine, and a lot of those Zulus then come with Imbajani. Into the wild with Sean and Duff, so they set off again. I think northbound, still going north. I can't remember.
0: Yes, I think, yes there's, there's a, a joke about it, isn't there? That um, they—that's uh, the direction they were going, so they, they keep going in that direction.
1: And, and what they come across is lots and lots of elephant. Yeah. And they shoot and they take the ivory from lots and lots of elephants. Yes. So when 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 the Lion Feeds was published in South Africa, well, it wasn't published in South Africa, because it was banned. And it was banned on account of the sexy bits, um, which we were talking about at the beginning, which, I mean, you read them now. And I mean, it's just ridiculous to think that they have been, because because they're not particularly graphic. They're, They're written entirely, I I think the the first time that that, um, that Anna and Sean have sex I think is very well written I think the interaction between these two teenagers, both of them incredibly curious to find out what it's like she kind of knowing she shouldn't but really wanting to, him just really wanting to (laughs) anyway, it was banned because of that now, today and I know this having had Sensitivity reader problems over writing something with simply a historically accurate account of something that's really happened in a Wilbur book, and a sensitive re- re- sensitivity reader saying, You can't say that. And me saying, Yes, but that's what actually happened. And then saying, We don't care. I suspect that on the grounds of the fact that there are these Zulus who kind of follow Sean and call him which is, I guess, like Buana, Massa, whatever on account of killing huge numbers of elephants on a, on all sorts of grounds the book would not be publishable in its present form today would you agree with that
0: yeah i i wouldn't imagine if you sent this manuscript in in 2023 uh no publisher i think would um would accept it um for for those reasons um
1: i mean i have to say that i think that that is absurd i mean now looking back on the south african thing we say oh my god that's just ridiculous i have a feeling that in 30 years people will go back this this is just a new form of victorianism it's a new form of prudishness. it's a new form of hypersensitivity and of basically telling other people how they should think and what's not good for them, and you you know when we're not allowed to read what's not good for us,
0: yeah, and that was very much the mentality of the apartheid regime um obviously they they banned this book because of the sex um they'd actually you could not publish crime novels in south you know, murder mysteries in South Africa because there was an uh, the apartheid regime thought that it's corrupting of the morals to write about people committing crimes um so for decades um you know crime novels were banned um so you've that's the level of kind of lack of or well I, they, they, you know concern for the public morals or you know just crushing lack of imagination um on the part of the government uh, and and in terms of trying to control what people think and you're right it, i think it is um kind of salutary for us to think well there's you know one of the more odious regimes of the 20th century um and maybe we're falling into some of the same traps
1: i agree because i because i because i think that it's like the whole thing about authors can't write about characters whose lives are different from their own yeah the whole point about writing fiction is that you imagine what it's like to be somebody else i mean that's what fiction is yeah. and you imagine what it's like to be in a world that you don't necessarily know or in a different time period or in a different place or a different culture and that's kind of our job yeah and so but, but i mean the, the, i suppose the question then comes okay are there things that even if you're not woke, are hard to take about this book. And the one thing I did find, I mean, they kill an awful lot of elephants. Now, as it happened, (laughs) if you read Elephant Song, which Wilbur would have written, I suppose, about 30 years later, which is very much against the wholesale slaughter of elephants and the kind of poaching of elephants, I don't know if that was Will, but changing his attitudes. He certainly didn't change his attitudes about hunting, in particular, in general. Really. Yeah. They, essentially, what happens is that, that Sean goes out and makes a second fortune, killing huge numbers of elephants, and and there's something about the relentlessness with which the and and part of it is he is himself working through some awful compulsive thing <laughs> in him even though I understand there were elephant hunters. And of course, in those days, there was no shortage of elephants. But of course, he was creating the shortage of elephants. <laughs>
0: yes, by, by, the, by the time he was finished, there was, yeah. I mean, there is this passage, because again, drawing the contrast between the characters. So they go on their first elephant hunt, and Sean obviously brings down um, his his target and he goes back. And Duff's, I think he's not even fired his rifle. And basically, Duff just says, I don't get it. Uh, and there's this great passage um, where basically, and this is Sean, but you sort of feel this is Wilbur talking to the reader a bit as well. This
1: is the one passage I had marked in the book myself. So we clearly both.
0: The- <laughs> this one starts. It was like explaining color to a blind man, describing the lust of the hunter to someone who was born without it. Yes. Yeah.
1: Sean listened, Duff, so Duff carried on. Duff listened in agonized silence as Sean tried to find the words for the excitement that makes a man's blood sing through his body, that heightens his senses and allows him to lose himself in an emotion as old as the urge to mate. Sean tried to show him him how the nobler and more beautiful was the quarry, the stronger was the compulsion to hunt and kill it. It had no conscious cruelty in it, it was rather an expression of love, a fierce, possessive love, a devouring love that needed the complete and irrevocable act of death for its consummation. Now there is in current terms a deeply, deeply, deeply provocative problematic paragraph to which I will only say two things. I'm no hunter, well firstly I'm no hunter, I have no desire to kill anything but I think that any of us who eat meat from animals that are killed in slaughterhouses have a nerve to criticise somebody who goes and hunts because we've we are benefiting from the
2: yeah.
1: industrial slaughter of animals in a way that is at least as cruel as hunting them. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that, particularly in Africa, hunting is the original activity of the human male. I mean, that, that was what men did in order for the tribe to get their food. I mean, the women gathered the nuts and the berries and what have you. The men went out. I mean, so is it is that, I mean, Wilbur's right that it is a profound human instinct. And and he's also right in that, and what's interesting about him as a writer and as a person, is that he is at one and the same time a passionate writer about nature yeah, and a passionate believer in conservation and would... And does in his in, in on leopard rocks we'll come to. Um, he does argue that there is actually a, a, a very clear link between conservation and hunting, and the same thing people say about grouse moors and pheasant shoots and stuff like that. that in order that, that habitats are preserved, if there is an economical benefit to be gained from hunting the animals that live on those habitats.
0: Yeah, I I don't find it so problematic now. I also am not a hunter, and I'd say that passage that it doesn't strike a chord within me. I I do not feel that urge um, at all. But I'm also conscious that in the however many tens of thousands of years of human history, I'm the outlier, right? I mean, our sensibilities, even probably in the last thirty or forty years, we it, a blip. Um, you know, for probably our ancestors going back, you know, to Neanderthal times or before um would absolutely probably recognize that so in a sense i read it as um again which i think is one of the joys of fiction is it's not just being exposed to places that you haven't been to but actually to ways of thinking um okay. that you have never thought and that's that's sort of how i take it so yeah i i, I agree with you it's, it's it's sort of we as sort of soft causative modern readers uh, read it and think, oh, the poor elephants, uh, which I, I have that reaction too. Um, but as I say, I, I read it as of its time and of its place and of something that has been very, very human. I,
1: and I don't doubt for a single second that he is, that he's writing authentically about the period and about the place yeah. and about the actor. Yeah. So I, I certainly wouldn't censor it. I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I find kind of writers who wish to censor other writers' work. It's kind of despicable. I completely don't believe in the whole kind of cancelling culture where if you don't like something, you just don't refuse to tolerate anything that you don't like.
0: I mean, you have to say they've just reissued the uh, Roald Dahl, and I think some of the Ian Fleming books, uh, with with updated language. And you sort of feel that uh, if they tried that with this book, uh, (laughs) it would go horribly wrong.
1: (laughs) The Roald Dahl thing was interesting because the publishers suddenly realised that everybody from Queen Camilla on down. Was absolutely outraged that the the, the roll books, which are the ultimate the books, were suddenly workified, and they've been forced yeah. to to reissue kind of I think they call them Roald Dahl classic. I'd <laughs> yeah. very interested to know what the sales figures are. Yeah. So I certainly wouldn't I certainly wouldn't think that oh my god you know and and I would if I were if I were Wilbur now and and a publisher told me you've got to take out that elephant killing bit I'd say the hell with you <laughs> yeah again. He's writing about those characters. Of course, as you say, that bit, and I had exactly the same reaction, that this is Wilbur basically talking to the reader. There's no point in the book at which the characters of Sean and Wilbur Smith are closer together than in that passage. That's absolutely the point at which they're the same person. Yeah, I just think, I I I, mean, and I think the, the... it's Something which one encounters all the way through, and you know, again, could you have, could you have a written that way in a modern book? I don't know. I just don't know. I have a feeling I doubt it. But anyway, we are coming now to the to the to the kind of end of the book, which boy, it's a story with a sting in its tail.
0: Yeah, or or or, or a uh, rabid virus in its bite. Um.
1: You're right because there's the rabid virus. In fact, because gosh, okay. Don't be afraid to kill your characters. Is one of those anybody yeah. seen Game of Thrones, and then Lord Stark is killed at the end of series one.: What? he's, he's killed.: Between then and the end of series eight, so's everybody else. That's reef. Really, that's right. Then. Um, um, but I mean I think there's a very if, if readers know that you are prepared to kill any character, because yeah. they can't count on, oh, it's all going to be OK. So now here are two deaths of people close to Sean, so let's start with the first.
0: Yeah, so Duff is the first one. So uh, as we said, the, the Duff and Sean are way out beyond the frontier um, in in the wilderness hunting, uh, and Duff gets bitten by a rabid jackal. Um, and this is you have to say this is a very Wilburish way to go, um, and um, and it's just horrific. I mean, this was the bit where wait. I could kind of deal with the elephant killing, but um, the way that Duff dies um, the, the virus gradually takes hold of him—and um, eventually Sean has to chain him up like an like like a wild animal, and Duff get, kind of becomes this sort of crazed animal leaping about on the end of his on the end of his chain.
1: Uh, but th- what's really clever about it is that at first, so so. Two creatures get bitten by this rabid jackal. One is one is a dog and one is Duff. And the dog dies, but Duff seems to be okay. But then he isn't.
0: Yes, but this description of Duff um, in his later stages, the madness was a fire in his eyes and his cheeks twitched. A yellowish froth coated his teeth and formed a thin line of scum along his lips. Um, I mean, he's just become this absolute monster.
1: Gum and pus and f- bodily fluids are things which, which will recur again and again in the, in the world <laughs> Earth. Yeah. So anyway, so, so Duff dies. Sean is... Yes, Duff. I think
0: the, only, the thing we should just uh, flag about that as well is that, of course, Sean has this dilemma. And again, this is really um, unflinching because Duff says, promise me you won't shoot me like you shot the dog. Uh, and Sean promises uh, and then has to watch Duff just go downhill and downhill and it gets grimmer and grimmer and grimmer and um and sean has this 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 agonizing dilemma of do i break my oath and shoot him to put him out of his misery because there's only one way this is going to end or do i um do i keep my oath but watch him die this absolutely horrible death and again it's wilbur kind of um Splits the dilemma, but then in an even worse way because he waits until the very end and then he shoots him. So he's managed to both give him the horrible death and break his oath. Um, That's the point
1: about Umbajani also basically because he he discusses because Umbejani is still saying you should do it. Yeah, and 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 it's it's him I think who kind of in a sense um, gives Sean the permission if you know what I mean, the justification for doing it. So there's another case right, where, as it were, the person who's apparently in the servile position is in fact kind of the moral leader.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, and and again, I think it's, uh, it, we're talking about sort of a coming of age story. And I think there's something a bit like, almost sort of like Pilgrim's Progress or something like this book, where it's a series of episodic um, events, each of which, um, you know, Sean learns something about life and about himself and, and becomes more of the man he is destined to be. Uh, and this is a, you know, this is a brutal lesson.
1: Luckily, however, for Sean, <laughs> he's about to have a good fight. <laughs> yes,
0: <laughs> yes, uh, I'm sure that there's a there's a, a PhD to be written on the uh, the uh, significance of, of symbolic fights in, uh, in in this book.
1: I think you're right about the pilgrims progress thing. Um, the officer, he does, he has these episodes in announcement. and and he comes across a family of Boer trekkers because he essentially yeah. camps in land, which they thought of think of as it, And that the young man of the family is called Jan Paulus. Yeah. And the, he and he and Sean being two alpha males, kind of like dogs, rub each other up the wrong <laughs> way. And yeah. naturally they have to have a thumping good fight. Yeah. Which is is yeah. approved of by the by the uh, by the young boy's mother and his sisters and his father. They think this is just the sort of way Two young chaps should make their introductions. Yeah, and on the wagon is is this beautiful girl, Katrina. Yeah, young girl. She's only sixteen.
0: Uh, sixteen, going on seventeen, uh, as, as they say. Yeah,
1: and um, and they and they fall in love, and Sean now for the first time falls in love. Yeah, and marry and 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 after swimming across a raging torrent. The Limpopo River, I think, is it? Yeah. Limpopo. He swims across the river, which is in Spate, to get to her. Yeah. Um, and emerges bedraggled the far side, and this act of daring do naturally wins over the fair maiden. And and you think, oh, good, this is all going to end very happily, and they marry, <laughs> yeah. and she has a child, and then she gets malaria, and you think, oh my god she's not going to die of malaria. Is she? <laughs> well, please don't die of malaria. You're you're the heroine, and she survives. I yeah. You think, oh great. Oh, great, <laughs> yeah, Phew. happy ending. Ahoy! No, there and this spoiler alert for those of us who have been 50, 59 years, you've had to read this, but just in case you haven't, stop listening now. while you don't come back next week, but be careful anyway. Over to you to spoil the ending of this podcast.
0: So, yeah, so. I think the first thing to say is that it sort of speaks to the unconventional structure of this book that uh, the great love of his life doesn't rock up until page four hundred and twenty of about page of five hundred and thirty. So, yeah, she comes in very late. Uh, They have this sort of whirlwind romance, as you say. She gets pregnant uh, and has the son, Um, and then they go back to Johannesburg, uh, which I think the first time he's been back uh, since he was run out of town. and he sees Candy, um, who had been, uh, listeners will remember, the uh, the barkeeper uh, of the, the saloon when they first rocked up there to seek their fortunes in gold. Uh, we skipped over the bit where Duff uh, is engaged to her. They plan this incredibly elaborate wedding. And on her wedding morning, Duff jilts her and runs away because uh, he, and this is is his kind of character flaw, Um, he basically has this this phobia of family um, based on his own kind of past relationships with his father and and his first wife, uh, who we should add is is still alive. And so technically it would have been bigamy, but that's a lesser issue. Um, So Duff's jilted her. After the, the failed wedding, Candy does take solace in Sean's arms um and they sleep together and i think it's only the once um and it's kind of um sympathy sex i guess
1: it plunges into the candy deep <laughs> uh,
0: are, we, are we allowed to have that uh in this podcast i'm not sure um yes so um so they have had this one um moment of kind of shared passion uh in what's otherwise as you say a very platonic and kind of business like relationship.
1: I think it's also fun. I mean I think I think she's 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 kind of I think of all the characters in the book in some respects she's shown in almost the most sympathetic kind of she's always well meaning. She always just wants good things to happen. She livens up both their lives. Yeah. Um so yeah, she's she's been, a, she's, been a, she's been a she's been a sort of ray of sunshine.
0: She? Yeah. So um sean reconnects with her in johannesburg and um katrina sees this uh and in fact while katrina is sort of passed out uh candy comes to their hotel and spends some time with Sean, and it's all completely innocent she wants to know what's happened to duff um they're catching up with with her old friend um but katrina has this uh her kind of fatal flaw is this tremendous insecurity Uh, And she concludes from this that Sean has been unfaithful with Candy.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, to me, I I read also, I'm not sure Sean will, but it now reads as kind of partly postnatal depression. She's had, she's lost their second child. Yeah. And she's had malaria. So I think, I think, I think think we are sort of told that, you know, that she's going to be very psychologically frail and what have you. So she is, she's in a very a very delicate state psychologically at this point, a Very, yeah. a very vulnerable state, which, of course, a man like Sean is new. not
0: well-equipped to, to notice. Yeah, he said, <laughs> so, well, let's do yeah.
1: shopping and I'll buy you new dresses. Da, 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 da. Actually, she's in no mood. She's not, she's not well enough for it. And she doesn't, you know, it's sort of more for his pleasure than for hers. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but it's, it's, not, it's not meant badly by him. He just doesn't quite know what to do in the circumstance.
0: Yeah. Um so she um goes up to the candy deep and hurls herself into it.
1: Yes she does.
0: And that that is that. So
1: There's a rather there's a rather powerful detail actually, which is that she she has the family Bible. And they in the family Bible they've written the, they write the names of the family members when they're born and when they die. And Sean realised and at the first when she goes missing every s don't worry, she's just gone off, you know, she's He'll come back she's just in a bad mood, she's punishing you or something, and then he opens up the Bible and she's written the date of death yeah, next to her name and 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 actually you don't you don't see her do it all you see is he goes up to the candy deep and he just sees uh, like a, a strand of her of her dress or whatever it is fluttering from the wire.
0: Yeah it's a it's a green shawl um caught on the barbed wire fence um flapping its wings like a big green bird of prey.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and so as a read, but here's the thing and and, and 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 although Garrick has been mentioned because because Sean meets in the bar when he gets back to Johannesburg he meets kind of an old school friend who's become this very pompous successful cattle person. Hmm. And sort of hears about Garrick and Ada, and gets a bit of a lecture about oh, you've not, you know, you've not. Garrick's now drunk, but you've not written to your mother. She's desperate. Da, 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 da. So there's a kind of a sense that he's not that that he, there's a sort of moral debt that has to be paid. But when the the book kind of ends with him looking down into the mine, yeah, and all you want to do is to find out what happens next,
2: yeah. Yeah.
1: What's kind of fascinating is that in real life, Wilbur then wrote a ton of other books that had nothing to do with this, and yet didn't come back to this story for several years. Yes. But as a reader now, I'm I, I end the end of the book kind of shocked, but precisely because I was shocked, I was like, okay, so how is this going to resolve? The story is not, the story has in no way it's sort of been resolved, but it's not been resolved. You just want to know how how is Sean going to redeem himself because because he's been punished. He's lost, kind of lost everything. Everything that he's cared about, his best friend, the only woman he's really loved. You know, the money he's made from killing all those elephants kind of doesn't mean anything to him anymore. Golly, I want to know what happens next.
0: Yeah. So the ending is extraordinary. So the fact that um, it's it's page 533, where um, he sees the shawl at the top of the shaft and realises what happened. And before you get to the end of page 534, the book is over. So there is no, no time at all. It's, it, it's, 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 it's a, a astonishingly, shockingly abrupt ending. Um, this is one of
1: those naive kind of, the whole technique of the book is it has no technique. Yeah. Because uh, these, these things just happen one after another. <laughs> and it's not kind of neat. It's not all wrapped up in a bow. Which he'll learn to do later. It's and it's quite it's quite Victorian in that respect, kind of the the, the, the frankness of the loss, but it's incredibly powerful, and you can see why publishers reading it, because this, out of nowhere, this is this South African guy just appears with this book, or South African ready They would they would have thought South African, and it's just extraordinarily powerful and. And just, I, I, it reminded me of this, I used to know a guy called Ian Truen, who was a great publishing editor. And he worked with another very, 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 very famous best-selling, mega-selling author of some controversy and renown. And he said that this guy, when, when they when they got the manuscripts in, that the scripts were kind of gibberish. The facts were just ludicrously wrong. Hmm. Nothing kind of made sense. And yet you were completely gripped. And he said, if we were all Stone Age people sitting around a fire, X, the mystery author, would be the one telling us the stories. Yeah. And Wilbur, although his book is not at all gibberish, because it's incredibly, well, as I say, it's incredibly well informed. He knows exactly what he's writing about. Nevertheless, what you come away with is, here is somebody who's just the storyteller of the tribe. He just knows how to tell a story. And even the, for all the things that you and I might professionally look at and go to the, and I dare say he would have done in later years. God, it's a good book.
0: I mean, my understanding of the ending has, it's the first time I read it, I was just like, you know, what, uh, how can you do that to me? Uh, and of course, as you said, he didn't go back to it to, to continue the uh, Sean's story for years. And he never intended to. I mean, I think he's on record saying that um, as far as he was concerned, that was the end of the story. And uh, you know, The Courtneys is now the, the longest running series in literary history. And I just want to read the last two two lines of the book um, because they're, um, I mean, in a sense, they're very unrevealing. So Sean's standing there, having just seen um, what's happened uh, to, to Katrina. Uh, he's there with his son, Dirk, uh, and uh, Dirk says, you're going to cry, Daddy. Uh, and sh- uh, and the, the, the lines are, no, Dirk, Sean answered, I'm not going to cry. Crying never helps very much. And Umbajani took them to where the wagons waited at Pretoria. It's... I mean, it, you're looking at that, thinking, "What, what am I supposed to make of that?" Um, but as I've thought about this book and um, which I've tried to understand it, my, my 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 theory of this book is that this is basically Wilbur in dialogue with Kipling's poem. If you know, if you can meet with triumph and disaster just the same, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, then you'll be a man, my son. Uh, and in fact, uh, in his autobiography, and this is something come on to. You, um you know he talks about how that poem has been a touchstone of his life and his writing um and in a sense that the triumph and disaster just the same is the point so it it ends on a disaster because uh, it is the same as a triumph the point is not um that it's it's great and we're all happy for him the point is that sean is now enough of a man that he can deal with both these incredible highs that he's had and and these incredible lows uh, and I think that's how the ending makes sense to me.
1: So that is When the Lion Feeds, which we have discussed in almost as long as it would take you to read it. <laughs> and I think it, it says on the front of the paperback edition, a master storyteller Sunday Times," And it is, it's the work of a master storyteller. It is the, it is the, the first flowering of someone who was just put on this earth to tell stories.
0: Yes. And it's interesting when Wilbur talked about his, the way he wrote, it was very much, I just write the story that comes to me. It wasn't planned. It wasn't kind of carefully crafted in advance. It was just him reacting to his characters um, and whatever was feeling right to him as a storyteller. Uh, And I think you do get that in, 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 in the sort of the, 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 the very loose structure of this book.
1: He, He said to me once in one of our interviews, that he ended every day's work halfway through a sentence and all he knew was how he was going to end the sentence and after that it was just going to take care of itself and and you know and that's what that's what he did and and uh, yes he learned over the years the kind of the technique of how you structure these things which this book does not have but it has something which you can't be taught which is which is the
0: gift of narrative. Yeah, I think it's far more interesting, actually, for the lack of technique. I, I love this book. Um, and, I, and and one of the reasons, I love it for many reasons, one of the reasons is that it is not, you know, if he had set it up so that, um, you know, Horadsky is his enemy from childhood and they have a kind of fi- climactic showdown.
2: Um, yes,
0: yes. And it's clear, you know, it's, everything's tied up and then he gets the girl and it ends with a slightly more um, satisfying, you know, rounded out conclusion. It wouldn't be the book it is. It's the it's so different, um, and it subverts your expectations every turn. And that's really our, our storytelling, isn't it? Um, that you're 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 constantly surprising the reader and kind of d- delighting them with the surprises, even when if, even if the surprises actually a horrible things.
1: I agree. It, it, you you don't, yeah. You, you it's completely unpredictable because he hasn't predicted it. He's just written it. yes. <laughs> so, yeah. so the reason is whereas whereas. I mean, so many books, okay, there's a pleasure you get in a, in a romantic novel or indeed a thriller. You know that James Bond is going to survive. You know that the heroine is going to get her man. But you just want to know how. Yeah. And the pleasure comes from this. And, and there's and the kind of jeopardy where it looks like it's not going to happen, but then it does. Yeah. Boy meets yeah. girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. Yeah. And so the pleasure comes in how is the formula going to be played out? In this, no formula. No formula at all. You just want to turn the page.
0: That's, I mean, if there was one tribute to a book you can give, and I think that Wilbur would have wanted, it's that, isn't it? You just want to turn the page.
1: Mm, Absolutely. So that wraps up our deep, deep dive into When the Lion Feeds, Wilbur Smith's first novel. So uh, next time, uh, we will be talking about the man who wrote that book. um, We'll be looking at On Leopard Rock, which is Wilbur Smith's Kind of autobiography, kind of memoir, kind of also a book in which stories sort of take, happen one after another without any great sense of structure. And um, look forward to seeing you then. Yes, thanks very much. The Smith Show is produced by Christopher Wynn.
2: Music by Dewey DeLay.